All right. How many have your Bible? Hold them up. Uh, okay. You're doing better. One of these days I'm going to put the Hezekiah up here and preach from Hezekiah. And y'all, you know, y'all be just messed up. <laughs> Let me introduce what we're, where we're at today. We're in chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the transfiguration. But right now, where we are, as I said last week, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, identified him. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And as I said last week, it doesn't really matter what anybody else says about who Jesus is, it matters first who you say he is. Who do you live for that he is? Who do you proclaim that he is? That is the important decision for you to come to. And I said then that everything that has flowed up to this point now flows from it. Because we're about two years into Jesus' ministry. The disciples had been with him, walking with him all this time. They had watched him react to every type of people uh, and all the types of situations that he had been in. They heard his teachings. They saw his miracles. They had those times where they went aside together. They had been with him. They had lived by sight, but pretty soon they'd lived by faith. Because after his death, the disciples would have the memory of what they had seen. Their memory would be enriched, of course, by the Holy Spirit, because they and their associates recorded the Gospels for us. From that memory, prompted by the Holy Spirit... And it was further delineated in the epistles. Here in this spot, Jesus is moving and making a turn towards Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he would face his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And he was in the process of teaching them some essential lessons to prepare them. And what was he preparing them for? To minister in his absence. They, in turn, recorded in Scripture these lessons. And they are to help you and I navigate successfully the world that we live in apart uh, from a physical presence of Jesus with us. So are we ready? We're making a turn to Jerusalem. You're in chapter 9, verse 14. Let's see what the scripture says. When they came to the other disciples, where had they been? I know y'all slept since last week. They've been on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John... They had gone to the mount. The other disciples, the other nine, were waiting. And when Jesus and Peter, James, and John came down, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law, these were the scribes, was arguing with them. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. 
What are you arguing with them about? Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. This was a reply directed to, directly to his disciples. Because I want you to remember a little further back. Jesus had sent them out. And he had given them power and authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And he had not rescinded that. And now Jesus had come back down from the mountain. And they were in the midst of an argument. And here is a man caught in that argument wanting his son to be healed. Jesus said, How long shall I stay with you? The wording is important. Jesus all along, he has talked about his death and past resurrection one time prior. He would talk about it again. And so Jesus is saying to them, guys, you got to pay attention. I'm not going to continually be with you. How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, his father answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if... You can do anything, take pity and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for one who believes. Hold that on here. As I thought about this passage, what What nugget is God wanting to take from there? We're going to see that it's basically, I think, based on this. Jesus himself said everything. If you look that word up in the Greek, it means everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, we got some junky preachers out there that come up with this easy believism, name it and claim it garbage, that says the reason you don't get your prayers answered is because you don't have enough faith. Now, that's a pretty good cop-out because they're asking you to send money to them and they'll pray for you. And then when you've spent your money on them and they're... Your prayers are not answered and you question them. It's an easy out. Your faith was not enough. You stumbled, so it's your fault. Can you see the garbage of that kind of theology? And it is what it is. It's garbage. Here's the understanding. 
If Jesus said everything is possible for the one who believes, he has not put a distinction on whether, where your belief gauge ought to be. Because I don't know about you, but for me, there's some days my belief gauge is full and tapped out. I believe anything. There are other days that I'm running a little empty. Not quite sure. I know what the Bible says, but I'm not quite ready to live it out because I am unsure. We're going to see that's the condition of this man. He had seen his child from a, from a small child with this demon problem. And he'd come to Jesus and Jesus wasn't there and he'd talked to the disciples and they were unable to do this. And so hesitantly he says, if you can do something, I think today we need to understand something. That it is not up to us to fulfill the prayers in which we ask. When I pray to God, it is not up to me to decide how I'm, they're going to be answered, when they're going to be answered, and to just exactly what I'm going to get. Our life is to live believing that everything is possible for the one who believes and leave everything else to Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you why. Because Jesus made statements many times. He said, you're either for me or against me. And if you'll look, that's black and white and no gray. He didn't say you're either for me or a little bit against me or a little bit for me and hope you get to be more for me or you're not. It is a cut and dried question. And the cut and dried question for the body of Christ today in the world that we live in is this. Do we believe the word of God? Now, people get in arguments and they fight, and I've heard them say, I believe in everything from the appendix to the maps and all this kind of stuff. Listen, it doesn't matter. Your belief is shown in how you live. And so here's what I'm saying to you guys. I'm not giving you a time limit on when God is going to move or act in your life or my life. I'm not privy to that. But when we begin to live like everything is possible for the one who believes, then the devil is dealt a tremendous blow. Because where does he act first? Doubt. Doubt. You pray and you ask the Lord. And it's kind of like you get up looking. When is it going to happen? It hasn't happened you get the old devil that'll tell you, see, he didn't answer your prayers. That's something he can't do. The Bible says, do not give place for the devil. And the one place that Christians most often give a place for the devil is doubting the word of the master. You see, you don't have to see it to believe it. The disciples had a problem. When someone came to them with a need, they couldn't see Jesus. And they forgot that they had already, they'd already done something like this. And so the problem began. I am encouraging you 
Don't put a time limit on Jesus. Because here's the thing. We all know that there are prayers in our life we have prayed that we have later said, thank you, God, for not answering that prayer. Have we not? We've all said that. Because we just knew this was the right thing, and boy, was it not. We're to live our life believing nothing is impossible for Jesus. Okay? Point one. Let's go on. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, now look at the honesty. I do believe. Of course he did. He carried a son that was convulsing, no doubt a long way, to see Jesus. He wasn't going hoping Jesus could do something. He believed that he could, and then he said, help me overcome my belief. I think today that we are so proud that it is beyond us in prayer to confess to God Help me with my unbelief. Listen, there are times I've had to pray that. Lord, I believe everything is impossible. I believe nothing's impossible with you. But I don't know what's going to happen right now. You see, prayer is a communication between one who is lesser and one who is greater. And our faith is in the one that we request And we come to him because we know he has the answer. Living a humble life before God is admitting to God, admitting to others, there are times that I doubt. And I think that man left his house that morning believing God could help. But now when nothing happened, help me overcome My belief, the honesty and humility of a confession before God. Let's go. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and dumb mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors with his disciples, the disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. We don't really know what this kind means. Is he talking about this kind of a spirit, the the mute spirit? We, We don't really know there. But he's talking about it only comes out by prayer. Now, I know what you're asking. I heard somebody thinking, where does it say that Jesus prayed? See, you don't see it, do you? I have a question for you. Where does it say he didn't pray? But what was the highlight of Jesus' life? He did nothing before prayer. 
when you trace his life through the gospel, every time he was going to make a decision and do something, he spent time away from the crowd and in prayer before God. No doubt another reason is maybe these disciples, knowing they had already cast out this demon without any type of approaching prayer, decided they could handle that themselves. The lesson that from there is, is very simple. Friends, we can't handle anything ourselves. Without God in our life, without the Spirit of God in us, we are helpless and hopeless. In fact, I think we have forgotten a very root answer to what life as a Christian is. You need to understand the Christian walk is a walk of faith. Okay? Paul would write the, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And he would say this, For we live by faith, not by sight. We have our being. We live. To the Galatians, he would write this, I've been crucified with Christ. When he was crucified with Christ, he said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The question that I would ask you, when Paul also said to the Corinthians that if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation, I want to know who is driving your life. You are the new creation represented by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Paul's crucified. It's no longer him who lives in Christ. It's no longer him. But the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why? It's the life that he now. What do you mean now? The life after coming into a relation with Christ. The life I now live in this body, this same body, unfortunately, we're not getting new bodies right now. They're coming one of these days. Paul is living by faith in the Son of God. And you see, that is the question. What is the object of your faith? You need to ask yourself that. You need an honest answer. What is, who is the object of your faith. The Hebrew writer said this, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. In verse 6 of that same chapter, he says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Now, you are probably thinking, preacher, this is an elementary lesson. You're right. And by now, as the Hebrew writer said to those that he was writing to, by now we all ought to be teachers instead of being on a bottle. You see, we have not understood that faith is the absence of what we can see. Faith is not sight. You know, I can, you can go to the airport and look at an airplane and understand that the physics involved in that design says that when they get up to a certain speed and their flocks go into a certain position, that airplane will rise off the ground. 
But that's sight. And it'll never become faith till you punch a ticket and get on and sit down. Until you wake up every day believing. This is a gift from God. It is a life that he has given me to live today. And I'm not going to see. Because you see, as Christians, we put our trust in a God that we have not seen. A Jesus we have not seen. And a Holy Spirit we have not seen. We embrace a death and a resurrection we have not seen. We trust a justification that we have not seen. We look forward to eternal life and to heaven that we have not seen. Believers are saved by faith, sanctified by faith, and hope for glory of God by faith. Do you realize that? Now, some of you still look confused. Do you live like that? See, that's the question. Anybody can believe the Bible. My question to you, do you live out the word of God? See, this is a living word. This is a living word that comes in and reacts to the spirit in residence, which is the Holy Spirit. And allows us to go through storms and trials and things that we would beg God not to go through. But we come out confidently and we come out triumphantly because Christ is our Savior. I mean, Paul said it another way. For me to live is Christ and to die, gain. Paul didn't have a death wish. In fact, he goes on and said, I, it would be better for me if I just died and went to be with Jesus. But it's more, it's better for you if I stay around and I write to you and I come to you. Today, in order for us to impact the world with a light that needs to be seen, is a stubborn assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that Jesus Christ rules and reigns, and it doesn't matter what the circumstance or what the situation is. I've gone back this year and I'm studying the New Testament in a little bit different light. I'm looking at attitudes. Have you ever noticed the attitude of Paul and Peter, James, Jude, these people that, that wrote the scriptures? Have you ever noticed that? They have something what I called uh, a holy, <laughs> sanctified assurance. In fact, it is an assurance that is almost arrogance. In fact, to the world, they look at the assurance found in the Word of God and say that's sheer arrogance. But the one thing that you do see is once the training wheels fell off of the disciples, once they lost those and the Spirit of God began to fill them, move them, lead them, speak through them, they became mighty men of God Men who at times doubted God. Men who at times their faith would become low. But they never doubted what God can do. And I think the difference is today 
I'm afraid the body of Christ is turned on. And when we begin to doubt things, we begin to doubt God. I I just have a question I want to ask you. How big is your God? How big is he? It's shown by what makes you afraid. Think about that. You know, when I lived in a mining town, I was small. In order to survive, being small is I made friends with the big guys. Okay? I was their buddy. Whatever they said do, I did. And see, it was my job to go across town and agitate people. Some people would say, I have a knack for that. The spiritual gift of agitating. I I don't know. Maybe I do. But then I would run back and I would go around a certain corner and these guys chased me. And when they rounded the corner, there was some big old boys standing there. None of them was me. They were all my friends and I was behind them. How big is your God? What are the things that causes you to fear? What are the things in life that causes you to begin to doubt? Because you see, when you doubt, you have lost your faith. You know, I had a pastor one time that had this little nursery rhyme. And Charles would say this, faith that falters at the end was at the finish was faulty at the start. Faith that falters at the finish was faulty at the start. So sometimes in life, when you begin to be afraid of things, you're saying that whatever that fear is, is much larger and cannot be controlled by the God you serve, so you must fear it and make amends with it. You need to check the faith you had at the beginning. Because as we live this life in faith, by the time you get our age, folks, what in the world are you going to see are here that you haven't seen and haven't heard and what is going to make you afraid? Why do you think Paul in writing to the church said this, and this is my language, old folks, show the young folks how to live life. Show them that there's nothing to be afraid of because you've gone through every valley in life that they're going to go through. And so at this time of life, we ought to be the biggest problem and issue that Satan has because we don't believe the lying dog. We know he's a liar and we know that because his mouth is moving. And so we know that our God is larger than anything. And so we trust. And as Jesus said to the the man, Is there anything impossible with God? I want to tell you something else. This is not a blind faith. I am tired of hearing people talk about a blind faith. 2 Peter 1.19 says this. Well, I hope it says this. 
we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. This morning star is a reference to the day spring, reference in chapter 2 of the book of Luke, our day spring from on high, which was Jesus Christ. The prophetic word is the word of God. He said you, prior to that, he said you have the eyewitness account of those of us who saw Jesus. But you got something more sure. The prophetic word of God. Now, two questions I'm wondering. What has happened to the boldness of our faith? I don't mean hatefulness. I mean a steadfast boldness that nothing can move us. And secondly, what has happened to our honest confession to God? Whatever happened? I'm afraid most people, before they're honest with God, will stop praying. Because somehow you can't say God. You can't see it, say what he sees. Lord, I'm weak today. My faith level's going. I believe everything's impossible, is possible, but I don't know about this. Help my unbelief. The blessed thing about coming today and being together. If your faith meter is low, grab somebody and have them pray with you. This morning as we sing an invitation and after the invitation, in room three, we have counselors waiting for you. This way up front has not proved good. There are people that don't want to walk forward right now. They have prayer issues. And if you'll go in there, there are people who will pray with you. Not only that, they're there. There are people who are there that will give you an assurance of Jesus Christ. And so in room three, I think they got some signs out there. You need to step up. Then that's a place you'll find somebody that's fighting the same battle you're fighting. And they're there to walk with you. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, you're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. Strengthen us today that, Father, we may walk out of this place not worrying about the outcome of any particular event in life, but truly believing and living in the belief that if you're sovereign, you got it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.